This is a Federal News Network podcast. A new book says federal policy makes the nation's veterans sicker and poorer, and its author is not just anybody. Daniel Gade is a former Army lieutenant colonel who lost a leg in combat, now an adjunct lecturer in public administration and policy at American University. He's the co-author and publisher of Wounding Warriors, How Federal Policy Makes the Nation's Veterans Sicker and Poor, and he joins me now in studio. Mr. Gade, good to have you in. Thanks for having me. Well, what's the thesis of your book, considering that the federal government and the public spends tens of billions of dollars a year on veteran care? Yeah, the bumper sticker is that our nation spends more to keep veterans sick than it does to make them better or transition them successfully. And those lines crossed about two years ago. So right now we spend about $130 billion a year on disability benefits, and we spend less than that on health care. We spend less than that on transition assistance. We spend less than that on all other categories combined. So disability benefits are the largest portion. And if you think about it, what happens is the health care side, which is supposed to make veterans better, is in direct opposition to the disability side, which is paying them to be worse off. So an individual veteran faces the choice as they're leaving service, do I file for disability benefits or not? And every incentive is stacked to have them claim as much as they possibly can. And what it does is it causes them to adopt what's called the sick role. It makes them actually sicker. Well, that's interesting because uh, just to frame this a little bit, we're talking about a relatively small number of individuals because every veteran that comes out of the military is not sick or wounded or has some kind of a condition. So it seems like a large amount of money for relatively small amount of people. Would that be a fair way to characterize it? Well, actually, no. So there are about 18.5 million living veterans, of which about 6 million are receiving disability compensation. So it's about a third. And of the veterans who transition out this year, about half are going to apply for disability. Now, when you think of a disabled veteran, I'll just ask the people who are listening to close their eyes for half a second, unless you're driving, and think, like, what is a disabled veteran? And in your mind, you're thinking of amputations, you're thinking of spinal cord injuries, you're thinking of burn and blindness. But those numbers are very, very low relative to the number of people receiving disability compensation at all. Most of its disability payments are for things that are conditions of aging or of lifestyle, not combat wounds. So for example, the total number of people wounded in action in all of the Iraq and Afghanistan involvement for 20 years is about 60,000. Last year, about 250,000 people went on disability compensation, like four times more than the total number of wounded in 20 years of war. So that just gives you a sense of the scale involved. In some ways, then, the disability situation, the payout for disability, mirrors the larger societal payout of disability, which as a proportion of the population has been getting larger and larger and larger for decades, even though there seems to be more health and safety catch nets in place than ever before in history. Right. The problems that we describe in Wounding Warriors, available for pre-order on woundingwarriors.com if you want a signed copy, the problems we identify in Wounding Warriors are not unique to the VA. But the problem is nobody wants to say, hey, veterans respond to incentives like everybody else. If you give them a bunch of money to be sick, they're going to be sick. If you give them a bunch of money contingent on them exiting the labor market, they're going to exit the labor market. They respond to incentives. And what we argue in Wounding Warriors is essentially that what we need is policy that will help them reskill, transition, upskill, and thrive rather than policies that trap them in poverty and illness, which is what we have now. And let me ask you a personal question, because you did lose a leg Mm -hmm. in Iraq in a Mm -hmm. tour of duty. What was your journey to 
wholeness in some sense and the fact that I presume you're not on disability or if you are, you're still gainfully employed. Right. Sure. I'm, I'm definitely gainfully employed. So Wounding Warriors has its roots really in what I experienced in 2005. The book is not an autobiography. It's not about me at all. But I observed close up in my fellow wounded warriors that they were really embracing the idea that people owed them something because they had gotten blown up or whatever it was. And sure, we do owe something to our seriously disabled veterans. Of course we do. But what we owe them is a chance to thrive. What we owe them is every conditions set so that they can thrive on their own terms rather than just giving them stuff. And I saw that going on all around me in 2005, and it horrified me because my goal was to get back on active duty and just do what I was doing. So I got hurt in 2005 in January. I spent five months in the hospital, including the amputation and a bunch of other stuff. And then six months as an outpatient, and then I got back to work. I went and got a master's and a PhD while I was on active duty, taught at West Point for many years, and then retired from the Army finally as a lieutenant colonel in 2017. So I was able to stay on active duty, which was great. And when I left, it's really funny because they said to me at the VA, you have to go to all these VA appointments. And they said, hey, we need you to claim everything that's wrong with you. Claim every condition that you have. And I think it's a moral question for every veteran. Every veteran has to face this is what are you willing to point to your fellow citizen and say, you owe me for this. And so what I did was I claimed the conditions that were combat caused. So when they said, hey, do you want to claim disability payments for the amputation? Yes, I do. You know, and I'm a hip level amputee. I use crutches to get around. It's a significant issue. And I'm comfortable saying to my fellow citizen, hey, for my life, you're going to pay me for this disability. I'm comfortable saying that from a moral perspective. I don't think there's anybody, probably very few people in the country who would claim that that's an immoral stance. But also the VA claims guy was literally telling me to claim a bunch of stuff that was not true because he said, I can get you paid for it. He wanted me to claim a brain injury. I don't have a brain injury. He wanted me to claim uh, hearing loss. I don't have hearing loss. He wanted me to claim all this stuff because he knew that he could get me paid for it. And I just saw that as totally immoral, and I'm not going to do it. And I didn't claim conditions of aging either. I just claimed combat-caused conditions. We're speaking with retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Gade, who is co-author, along with Daniel Huang of Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. And so then what would a better policy look like, do you think? And we're, yes. I think we're talking about Veterans Health Administration and the BA benefits. Yeah. So basically what we need is an entire reset. And in the epilogue of Wounding Warriors, woundingwarriors.com, pre-order, I'll send you a signed copy. In the epilogue, I describe basically six or seven principles that our society should use. But the first one is we ought to prioritize reskilling, transitioning, and upskilling before we ever label somebody as disabled. The disability determination should come well after the rehabilitation determination is made. In other words, what we ought to do before we label somebody with a permanent disability label, we ought to give them every chance and every incentive to thrive. That's sort of part one. Part two is we need to take incentives into account. And if we want certain things, we ought to pay for those certain things. So an easy example is this. We know that obesity is a major problem in veterans and in everybody else. It causes diabetes, causes sleep apnea, causes all kinds of other things. What if Congress was willing to put in place, let's say, a $1,000 bonus at the end of every year for veterans who keep their body mass index within a certain healthy range, right? No problem. We're incentivizing what we want, and it actually would save money in the long run because you're getting away from a bunch of those obesity-related conditions. That's just one simple example of how do we take incentives into account 
and help our veterans thrive in a healthy way. And how could that apply to some of the mental illnesses, yeah. such as PTSD from traumatic brain injury, or even without traumatic brain injury, you can have post-traumatic stress disorder. That's a much subtler thing to get at than, say, whether someone has a limb or not. Yeah. How do you see that working in that area, which is also a growing area? It's absolutely a growing area. And what's interesting about that is once you get a 100% disability determination from the VA for post-traumatic stress disorder, you are no longer required to go to any mental health appointments at all. In other words, people are able to, in in Wounding Warriors, we talk about this explicitly, people are able to demonstrate symptoms up to a certain point, and then they are free to go and they take their money with them. And the way to do that is if we tied receipt of compensation with treatment, then we get people in treatment, we keep them in treatment so that their conditions can get better and so they can thrive. Because right now what happens is those people with PTSD take that money And they can go sit on the couch. They don't need to seek mental health treatment at all. And this is at the same time as we have a suicide crisis. Suicide is a disease of despair. And we have all these people who are despairing. And we're making no effort as a country to catch them and to help them be healthier. And so we talk about that in Wounding Warriors at some length. And PTSD is a tough one because it's a real condition that is easily feigned. You can fake it. And people do. There are guidebooks about how to do it. And it's very lucrative to do so. So it's a real problem. And in changing some of these policies, you're running up against a Congress, which Mm -hmm. in both parties is highly invested in the system as it is now, to say nothing of the Veterans Affairs Department, which is not ill-motivated in any way. But nevertheless, these incentives are built into what they do. So how can this change in a realistic sense? It's all about incentives, and it's all about telling the truth. So the incentive of the political left, they believe that every veteran is a broken toy, victims of a patriarchal system that sends them to build empires overseas. You know, And on the political right, they believe that anybody who ever even looks at a uniform, whether you're a generator mechanic in the Coast Guard or a Medal of Honor Marine, they say you're a hero. And therefore, both sides agree that veterans deserve everything. And once they agree on that, then there's this whole disability entitlement ecosystem of organizations and people who say, because veterans deserve everything, the way we express that is with dollars. I think the way we should express that is in opportunities to thrive and less so in direct cash payments. And a follow-up question on that whole idea of enabling people to thrive. Very often, the culture surrounding this dictates that only other veterans are capable of helping veterans. And I've asked many people this question, well, can't people that are not veterans that just might be sympathetic to the cause be trained to be able to help veterans or are veterans instilled with the idea that only another veteran can help them understand their situation? Yeah. As a matter of fact, for sure, non-veterans can help veterans. But one thing that's funny, and I haven't talked about this in years, but my dissertation showed that veterans were actually harsher towards other veterans in the disability claims process than were non-veteran claims processors. And it was a stark finding. And so, yeah, non-veterans can certainly be helpful to veterans. And remember, there are 18 million veterans. That means there are 312 million Americans who are not veterans, right? And of course, they can be helpful to their fellow citizens who chose to wear a uniform at one point or another. Retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Gade is co-author, along with Daniel Huang, of Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. 
Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was 
it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, 
we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.